Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, it was. It was many many tragedies ago. But you know what? When you lie to please power, it often violates your own set of ethical guidelines. And that's what they're dealing with at NOAA. (laughs) uh, And that's what the rest of us are dealing with every damn day. Coop, you are the man. Great to see you. Happy Monday. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. I say happy Monday, and I wish each and every one of you uh, a good day and a good night. But I know many of you are worried. You're sick. You're sad. You're scared. And yes, you're angry. The pandemic has gotten boring, but that doesn't make it go away. This thing is doing exactly what a virus does. It's spreading. And we have to look at why and remind what we can do and what will happen if we don't do it. And while nobody out there needs or should need another example that we need to change how we treat one another and how we police, we get the Rayshard Brooks situation, a tragic killing by any definition in Atlanta that is echoing in waves of outrage once again across the land. But it's not as clear a story as that of George Floyd's killing. Thankfully, much of it is on video, so we don't get tortured by various people's takes from officers and witnesses. I know this video can be disturbing, but I think not paying attention to the reality is more disturbing. So here's what we know. Cops were called by Wendy's to remove a car from their drive through lane. Police come find an apparently intoxicated Mr. Brooks. Half an hour of peaceful dialogue ensues He's talking about his sister and where to go and walking home. Uh, this, this video is moving way too fast, but we're gonna take you through it again, don't worry. After they have the dialogue and they allow him to move his car, they then attempt to arrest him. Now, this is where it gets more complicated. Mr. Brooks resists, that cannot be in dispute. The officers don't seem to know how to control him. That is a very key point for me. I'll make it in more detail later about why it matters so much to me in this situation. Because they cannot, two of them, control one inebriated, apparently, Mr. Brooks, they go to the taser. Brooks gets up, takes a swing at one of the officers, grabs the officer's taser, takes off running. I don't see that Mr. Brooks had what some describe as drug-induced super strength that sometimes you'll hear discussed. I see poor technique, and that matters in this analysis. If you can't do your job using minimal force, you wind up using more and more force. Hence, two officers not being able to control in a struggle that anybody who's had any measure of fight training sees, they don't know what they're doing on the ground with this man. They don't. I'm sorry. No disrespect to police. I have high regard for how many of you do the job, men and women. This is not good technique. They then use the taser because they could not control him. He then gets the taser. And then what you happen, see here, ensues. He gets away from two officers. 
because they don't know how to restrain him. He takes off. The officer then shoots toward Brooks and hits him. Okay? Now, did he have the taser? Yes. Did he appear to reach behind his shoulder and shoot at the officer as he was running away? Yes. The officer is Garrett Rolf, R-O-L-F-E. Rolf is chasing a man who's running away and shoots him twice in the back. Yes, Brooks resisted. Yes, he hit a cop and got their taser and took off and arguably tried to use it. He was also shot multiple times while running away by police who knew who he was and where he lived. And one key point, that what he was pointing at them was not a gun because they had already searched him and knew he did not have a gun. And yet this is going to be heartbreak all across the board and already is. And the question once again looms above us, what is justice? The police chief stepped down Saturday. The officer who shot Brooks may be charged any day. The Brooks family, once again, crushed. You people that are looking around the world and you have your feelings. Before it happened to us, I could only guess at what you felt, but now I understand. Life shouldn't be this complicated. Life shouldn't be where we have to feel some type of way if we see a police or somebody of a different color. We're gonna have to bear him. We're gonna have to say we miss you. And if we didn't say we love you enough, we gotta apologize to him for not telling him that we loved him that much. <laughs> All we do is just watch now, right? There's nothing to say. There's nothing to understand. You know exactly what that family is going through now. You've seen it so many times. They don't understand. This doesn't make any sense to them. They don't break it down in some type of points for and against. And there just doesn't seem to be any answer. Hopefully, what we're getting is a will to have an answer. A will to see it as something more than another episode and a horror story. Justin Miller is an attorney for Rayshard Brooks' family. Uh, Counselor, thank you for taking this opportunity to represent the family's perspective on this situation. Um, that, thank you for having me, Chris. Counselor, uh, a little bit of a uh, macro point. When you look at this situation, what is this case about for you? Um. And this is hard. The video you just showed, I mean, living that, it, it brought me to tears and, and I do this for a living. But um, to answer your question, to me, it's about his daughters and his son. Um, it's about that eight-year-old girl who had that dress on on Saturday waiting for her father to take her to the skating rink. 
Um, it's about a, a wife who's never going to see her husband again and didn't get to tell him how she felt and different things she wanted to express to him that um, that she'll never be able to express. It's about cousins and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and and a lot of people who loved him who'll never get to see him again. So justice justice is a hard thing to uh, really fully put your put your hands around. And in this one, I, I it, really all of them. But in this one right now, I don't know if we'll ever be able to say we really got it. You and I learned that justice is defined as fairness under law. There is no fairness when somebody's gone. There is no balancing of the equities because the life can never be given back. What do you think is the reason this happened? You both, you and I both know there are complications in this case. Um, right. What is your analysis of why Mr. Brooks died? I think it's a, it's a combination of, of what you were talking about earlier before I came on. Uh, it, yes, it does have something to do with the way Mr. Brooks reacted uh, in the situation, but it also has a lot to do with the police officers training. Um, I think they're trained to be more militarized than they need to be. And then they're placed in communities with people that they don't know. So these two officers, you know, I, I don't know them personally, but I just don't believe they lived in that community. Or they or they've been in that community and hung out there or went to church there and i don't believe their children went to school there um you know i would wager that those officers first contact with that community is when they became police officers and i could be wrong but that's usually how it is and in atlanta um and like other cities you know there are different pockets of of people and before you police a pocket of people you should have to do a hundred hours at least of community service. So you know the people you're around. Because why does it matter? Why does it matter, Justin? Why, why does that matter? Uh, what's the, point, the pushback? The pushback point is, um, no, they're there to enforce the law and that's what they do. And it's not personal. It's not a, uh, this isn't about palling around. What's the counterpoint? Well, I mean, 90% of the time, the interactions with police officers are not something that they need to go and crack somebody's head. I mean, there are a lot of interactions with police like this that, one that end perfectly, just like this. They one. spoke for half an hour to this guy. They, they let him move his car. You know, I mean, if you thought he was drunk, you know, you probably shouldn't have let him move the car. But they, they you know, because if you're going to arrest him for being inebriated, you, you should have figured it out in a half hour. You know, so he moves the car. They talk to him. It's all good. He wants to walk home. He wants to walk to his sister. He's got his sister pick me up. Then they decide to arrest him. Correct. Now, this is going to come down. Uh, to perception on what they had to use, what force they needed to use. He definitely resists. No question about it. Uh, Rayshard Brooks was wrong to resist. You're not supposed to. It is de facto illegal unless your life were in uh, threat in that moment. And it's a tough bar to make, as we both know. Right. So building that in, what was the right thing for police officers to do with a Rayshard Brooks resisting? Well, it depends on what point you're talking about. So... After the scuffle, I believe the right thing to do was to try to catch him, right? And if you can't catch him, then you can't shoot him because you can't catch up to him. Now, let's talk like, about why, Justin, because we, we take this sure. stuff for granted. This is not about him. I don't know, Justin. Uh, this is not about how we feel about it. It is for him. It should be. He's representing the family. This is the standard of, in this state of Georgia, when an officer can use this type of force that was used. Put it up on the screen, please. Uh, this, I know you know it, Justin, but, but this is just for the people uh, at home. 
Um, Peace officers may use deadly force, deadly force, okay, to apprehend a suspected felon. Apprehend means what you think, capture. Uh, Only when the officer reasonably believes that the suspect possesses a deadly weapon. Now, here they knew he did not because they'd already searched him. He had no gun on him. Oh, but he had the taser. The police do not consider it a deadly weapon. It is intermediate force. Uh, or any object, device, or instrument which, when used offensively against a person, is likely to or actually does result in serious bodily injury. Now, uh, we highlighted that part of it. Does the taser... uh, Now, there's a secondary analysis also. So if it's not about the weapon, if they believe that he's committed a serious crime that involves the infliction of or threatened infliction of serious physical harm... They may do that, too. That is a very tough legal standard that does not apply here. I don't believe they have a reasonable case to make these officers. They let him move the car. They talked to him for half an hour. If they thought he had just killed somebody or was going to kill someone when they intercepted him, they shouldn't have handled it this way from jump. So let's put that to the side. The taser beating, not even beating them up, escaping from them. Right. Because they just didn't know what they were doing on the ground, Justin. I don't know what your experience is with that kind of training. Two officers should be able to hold down one guy who does not seem that he's uh, cranked up on meth or on crack or on anything like that, that sometimes anecdotally people say makes someone super strong. I don't see it. He runs away, points the taser at them, tries to fire it. Does that trigger, uh, no pun intended, does that spring their ability to use the force they did? I don't think it does. And if you look at the video closely, the officer dropped his taser and put his hand on his gun before uh, Mr. Brooks turned around with that taser and, and just randomly shot it in the air. What does so that he mean already to you? was going there. He was already going to lethal force. He was already going to shoot him in the back before any of that stuff with Mr. Brooks happened. So I think he's going to use that as a defense. But if you look at the tape, you'll see he was already headed in that direction. And it's important for people to do this. Who shoots somebody in the back? We saw this with Walter Scott. Now there, the officer didn't know there was video, lied about the episode, and then somebody else, the bystander in South Carolina, showed us the video. Someone who shoots somebody else in the back generally is an enraged human being. They're so angry that they shoot at the person even though the person no longer presents a threat. That's not a police officer. Police officer is trained to de-escalate. The officer is allowed to use force that Justin and I can't use unless our life is reasonably in jeopardy because they're given an assumption of knowing how to use that power. The chief is gone. One of the officers was fired. The other is on desk duty. Uh, The prosecutor was on with Anderson and seemed to have, frankly, I've never heard a prosecutor before any charges come down speak uh, in as harsh tones as I heard this prosecutor. If there are charges, what charges do the family believe are warranted? The family's not really getting both officers to be charged. Um, That's part of what they've been saying the entire time. But they're definitely going to let the DA's office uh, make that decision. Okay. So they're just watching the situation. They just want it to be treated in all seriousness. And whatever the system says that means, they'll watch. Uh, Justin Miller, thank you. Please send our condolences to the family. I'm very sorry uh, that they have become relevant in this way. God bless and thank you for doing the job. Thank you, Chris. 
All right, look, we'll follow it. We'll see what happens. We'll go through the analyses. We'll do some more later in the show. Uh, This is not an easy case. It's not George Floyd. Um, Why? Because them arguing that Floyd resisted is not supported by anything that we have seen. Now, they're hiding the body camera video. They can under law. I don't don't mean to ascribe any animus on that. But here we have video and someone is resisting. But then he is running away. And that could very easily change the legal analysis for the prosecutors. All right. There's one problem. Now, another problem. The pandemic is doing what we thought it would do. We're not getting the summer off. So now the president gives what message to this country? No mask, social distancing masks, optional. You don't want to wear one? You don't want to, you don't want to keep anybody else safe? Fine. Come to the Trump rally in Tulsa. Inside what he hopes will be a record-setting crowd. Dr. Sanjay Gupta looks at what that could mean and why Tulsa's top doctor is very worried. Next. All right, where are we with the death toll from coronavirus? Well, in terms of cases, we're going to be well into the millions. In terms of deaths, it could surpass 201,000 by October, according to one new model. It's 30,000 more than was projected just last week. Why? We're not doing the right things where and when it matters. Here's the trend. 18 states rising in numbers. The South is a blanket of red including Oklahoma. That's where the president is going to be this weekend for his Tulsa rally. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins uh, me now. The first point of pushback, Sanjay, is, look, man, this is what the virus does. It spreads. This is what we expected. Why do we have to be in a sense of panic about it all the time? Look at other countries around the world, Chris. I mean, we've had 600 people die in the last 24 hours. Have we gotten used to that? That's more people than have died during this entire pandemic in other countries. They don't have a therapeutic. They don't have a vaccine. We didn't have, this didn't have to happen. The the sense of inevitability, right, that I think you're describing, that I think a lot of people have sort of resigned themselves to, it's not inevitable. It's it's, it's a pain. Yeah, this is tough. This is Mother Nature sort of fighting back, I guess, in some ways. But this did not have to happen. When When you cite these numbers of millions of people get infected, hundreds of thousands of people going to die. By the way, that IMHE model that you just cited, 200,000 people um, would die by October 1st, I believe they say. Keep in mind, Chris, you know, back in when we were talking about this in April, they were saying 60,000 people would die by August 4th. That was the model then. We, we're, we're almost, we're twice that essentially now, and it's the middle of June. So not only are we doing bad, we're doing far worse than even the, the model suggested at the time. Then so why would the president do what he's doing, Sanjay? Because, oh, look, you don't have any better data than his guys do, right? I mean, they're the ones uh, studying all this at the CDC. Uh, he's having his rally in Tulsa. Forget about the optics of where he's going to do it and when he's going to do it. But no mask, mm. mask optional, social distancing not necessary. Let's pack it in. Let's have record numbers. Why is that okay? Like, who's telling him that's okay? It's not okay. No, I, I can't imagine anyone is telling him this is okay. I mean, you heard Vice President Pence sort of justifying it today, but I think even he was sort of searching for the language to make this okay. Nobody is saying this is okay. Let me, let me show you the, uh, you know, the CDC, they, they, they put risk factors on different kinds of gatherings, right? As you might guess, a virtual gathering is going to be the lowest risk. 
the gathering that we're talking about here uh, is the highest risk, right? 20,000 capacity, I believe, in this particular arena. That's the number of people they want in there. There'll be no physical distancing. It's indoors, obviously, people coming from all over the place, many of them elderly. They're then going back to their communities. Uh, you're putting people shoulder to shoulder, masks optional. The virus is the virus, Chris. I mean, we've been talking about this for five and a half months. The virus hasn't changed in all this. It's a contagious virus. And, and, and that scenario there is, is the worst case. I cannot believe that in the, middle of the, in the middle of June, after all that we've learned about this pandemic, that that would even be a, a possibility. And it looks like it's actually going to happen. By the way, we have learned other good things as well in terms of what might work, Chris. Masks, went back and forth on masks. Take a look at the numbers. The question often comes, I have the virus, what's the likelihood I would spread it to you if I did not have a mask on? About 17.5%, they say. Wow. It's, these, this is early evidence. If you have a face mask on, uh, it's 3%, you know, it's about a six-fold improvement, right. mitigation in spread. It's not perfect, but it makes a difference. You wanna get back to some sort of normalcy, you wanna have the freedoms to go out and stuff like that, it probably should involve wearing a mask uh, for, for the reasons I'm showing you there. The data is becoming clear. So I, I don't know how to answer your first question, who, who says this is okay. My guess is nobody says it's okay. Well, we know one guy does. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you very much for being a voice of reason and science as always. Be well. All right, Talk so uh, we showed you more than two dozen examples of systemic racism in our country just last week. So what happens? Well, now, we got to fight about it, right? Okay, so here's the criticism. Systemic racism, okay, maybe, but not under Trump. That's old data, that's Obama, it ends. Okay, you want more? Let's do it. A little fight with facts, next. People don't like the truth about systemic racism. Not real, not that bad, not on our watch. These people also just happen to be politically aligned with this president. You can decide for yourself why. Yes, some of our data on this issue does stop in 2016. But the question is why? And only some does. They want the truth. Here it comes. First, the Fed only runs the complete numbers every three years. So where's the 2019? Good question. Ask Trump. Ask the same people who are defending him. They're over a year late. Why hide the numbers if it's the best economy for blacks ever? When you look past the R's and the D's, you see, yes, incomes for black people have slightly increased over the last 30 years. Hooray! No, not hooray. The bigger trend is those same people further, further, falling further and further behind. This is about a relative assessment, white versus black. Not just going up, it's relative. The true measure of wealth isn't about the numbers on your check, it's the gap between what you have and what someone else does. That's why we use the, war, the more complete federal data and not the annual income figures that come out every quarter. And the latest numbers show blacks behind by a 10 to one ratio their portion of the pie is actually shrinking right now. In the early 90s, the ratio between the wealth black families compared to white households was about 22%, okay? It's almost half that in the latest numbers. Again, half that. If you want to talk about the data, the proof is an administration that actively chooses not to see the truth. An administration that fought in court to stop collecting data on how many companies pay people of color. 
that won't even let investigators look at data to see if banks are making it harder for black people to get loans and ended the government's participation in a program to collect data on how police interact with black people. So don't play with the data when you don't even want to accrue any data. Arguing with the numbers because the truth doesn't fit a political agenda doesn't work when you try to bully CNN's polling. And it doesn't work when so many are in the streets living the reality that to you only looks like charts and graphs. Over the span of American history, the Trump administration is a rounding error. Playing gotcha politics ignores the moment we find ourselves in. One pushing to finally fulfill a promise that for too long has just been words on parchment. Either all women and men are created equal by what we see every day, or they are not. That area of Seattle, full of protesters, largely free of police, appears to have a new name. And the police are taking a new approach to the demonstrators. You've heard from the mayor. Now the chief is here to explain her strategy. Are they in sync? Plus, some breaking news about what the city council just banned. Next. Our breaking news tonight, the Seattle City Council has voted unanimously to ban the use of chokeholds by the police department. Also banned from using, uh, in crowd situations, weapons like chemical irritants, tear gas, water cannons. The move comes as President Trump again says he's considering federal action to address the ongoing occupation of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, now also known as the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP. Here's Trump today. If they don't do the job, I'll do the job. And I've already spoken to the Attorney General about it. But if they don't do the job, we will do the job. Now, Look, you can hear all the legal experts in the world say that's an empty threat. He can't do it. It has to be asked for except for very specific conditions. Let's talk to the Seattle police chief, Carmen Best, uh, here to weigh in. Thank you very much for joining us, chief. Appreciate it. Good evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. So I've heard you speak on this several times. Um, forget about the president. Let's just talk about the perception. Uh, you guys are not in control of your own city. You got people all over the place. They burned the police out of the precinct. You didn't like it. You didn't want to surrender the precinct. Uh, the city caved to pressure. Now they're saying you'll never get it back. It'll never be a police station again. Uh, how is that law and order? Well, that's a lot of questions there, but I'll, let me start by saying this. Cherry pick it. Uh, yeah, I will. I'll do that. Um, I can tell you that um, what's happening in Seattle, there's not a no Seattle Police Department response zone, as people have sometimes categorized the um, the Capitol Hill occupied uh, protest area. You know, there is a small area in a section of the city where we're dealing with some occupants and some of the issues there. But Seattle is not under siege, and we are still responding to every single call in every area of the city. When it comes to that particular area, uh, we have, if they, we get a call that's an important emergency 911 call, we're going in. We're going to do our job. I have a list of reports we've taken already. But we also have to be considerate of the delicate uh, situation that we have there. The last thing, the last thing I want to do is have any issue of violence um, occur in the area. So we're being very uh, judicial about how we do it, um, judicious, I mean, right. about how we do it and how we go in. And I would say to you, um, while we're dealing with that issue, um, more than anything, I'm focused on the future. How are we going to re-envision the future of policing with all that we have going on uh, in the country and specifically in Seattle uh, for me today? Uh, it's, 
Go ahead. Chief, let, let me just take one more beat on this, and then I want to talk to you about what needs to change. It is hard sure. for people to look at this. Uh, and look, I've spoken to the mayor multiple times, and Mayor Durkin mm-hmm. has said, you know, this could be a summer of love. This isn't the first time we've seen this. We're not as panicked by it as the rest of you guys are when you see it. It looks bad that they kicked you out of your own police station and you do not have control of the streets where they are, Chief, just to be fair from all the reporting on the ground. These guys are negotiating with you, uh, calling themselves a sovereign, making lists of demands and also asking to be taken care of, even though they're a sovereign, which I don't quite understand. Um, How is that to be perceived by people outside of Seattle as a good situation? Well, I wouldn't call it a good situation. I mean, words matter here. So what we have here is a situation where people have occupied an area and we're working with them. The city is working with them and has negotiators to work with them to have a peaceful resolution. Uh, Ultimately, we want to make sure that people don't get hurt. Uh, and it's not a situation where there's lawlessness. I mean, we do have some concerns, but we are responding to the area. We're doing so carefully. We're making sure that we take care of reports that have been given uh, and that we're following up on each of those reports and trying to make sure that people are arrested and we find any perpetrators of any crime. So that has not stopped. But you, admittedly, there are some barricades um, that, pre- that prevent us from going in as quickly and as efficiently as we'd like to. And certainly because we're not in the precinct, uh, response times across the entire East Precinct, Air- East Precinct area have increased. So I definitely want our officers back in that precinct uh, and not thrilled about the situation. But we recognize, too, that we have to make sure that we protect everyone's safety, ultimately, uh, in this situation. What is the one thing? People always ask for like dozens of points of change. Let's just start with one uh, to get past the status quo that we're in. What is one thing you think has to change? Well, there's a lot of things, but I would say I would start with we have to just re-envision how we're going to move forward. You know, the Seattle Police Department has been under a consent decree for almost a decade now, and we had done everything that we were asked to do by the federal government. And yet when I stood at the parade the other day, the Black Lives Matter march, I should say not parade, um, it was very clear to me that it wasn't successful. People are angry. Uh, They had a lot of signs about uh, the police department and defunding the police department and issues of brutality. And we can't ignore that. We have to acknowledge that there's a long history there. Uh, and having the, you know, a federal consent decree did not resolve the issues that we're dealing with. And I, I really sat and thought about it, and I really had an epiphany about we're going to have to change. And having one institution, such as the courts, that itself has its own history of racist practices and oppression, trying to direct another institution, which is the police department, which is struggling through our own history, isn't the answer. We have got to work directly with the community. We got to invite them in, bring them in under the tent, engage with them so that we know that we're doing the right thing and the communities will. We work for the people and we've, we've let them down in some ways, very clearly by the number of demonstrations that we're seeing and the number of black men who are dying at the hands of injustice. Well, it can't happen soon enough. Chief, we will continue to watch the situation. I appreciate you coming on the show. You are always invited to make the case uh, to this Thank audience. Thank you. Chief Carmen Thank Best, you very much. I wish you the best. Take care. Thank you. All right. Now, look, this is happening in Seattle in the context of one case, then another case, then another case. Now we have the shooting, the death of Rayshard Brooks. Okay. This is a reminder of two other high profile police killings of young black men. And yes, police officers have been getting hurt also, shot, killed, 
Is that an aspect of this problem? Of course. It's all about unnecessary violence. This case, though, Brooks, is going to be a tough one. It's going to be controversial for good and bad reason. Let's get perspective from some top legal and policing minds. Next. The officer who shot Rayshard Brooks has been fired. He'd been on the job for six years. The other is on desk duty. He'd been on the job two years. Does that matter? Probably a little bit. The family wants a criminal case. The law on this may be tricky. Let's get the legal and law enforcement analysis with Joey Jackson and uh, Charles Ramsey. Uh, Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Uh, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Ramsey, thank you for being with me uh, tonight. First, uh, do we have a quorum of agreement that this case is going to be a little bit trickier than what we saw uh, with George Floyd or even recently with Ahmaud Arbery? We in agreement on that, basically? Agreed, Chris. Yeah. All right. Fine. I would. Yeah. Uh, So then let's move forward. Uh, First, uh, Joey, on the side of, uh, hey, if we have it in the control room, can we put up the standard of use of deadly force by an officer again, just to have it um, when we talk about this? Uh, Joey, uh, what is the argument on the side uh, of the police not having had uh, the right grounds to use deadly force? Uh, Put it up there again, just to remind people. Here's when you can use deadly force. All right. If the person that you're dealing with has a deadly weapon or any device, it could be a hubcap, uh, that if you think the way they're using that hubcap could cause serious bodily injury, or when you think that person has created a real, committed a really bad crime, uh, which means that they could be uh, a really uh, threat of serious harm to others. That part I don't think fits here. That's why we highlighted the other part. Uh, So in that context, Joey, what do you see? So, Breaking it down further, here's going to be the analysis consistent with what you showed, Chris. Number one, was the officer in immediate fear of death or serious physical injury? That's the first inquiry. Number two, was the force they used proportionate to whatever threat was posed? And number three, did they act reasonably under the circumstances? There's an argument to be made in this case that when a person is running away, when they're having a taser, which is not a dangerous or deadly weapon, certainly it's a dangerous one, did you or was there a need to shoot and fire when they turn and proceeded to run and you're shooting toward the back? You you let the person go, you live to fight another day. Now, As it relates to a defensive position, the defense is going to argue it was a split-second decision that needed to be made. The officer evaluated the circumstances, and in that split-second context, he fired and shot. On the alternative side, the prosecution is going to say that you were not in immediate fear of death, certainly, that the force you used was disproportionate, you had a weapon, and you acted unreasonably under those circumstances. Those are going to be the competing narratives. Ultimately, if it gets that far, a jury will make the determination. Okay, so in terms of the police perspective on it, what did you see in this altercation? Chief Ramsey. Well, let me go back a bit from the video that was shown from when they first made contact with uh, Mr. Brooks. At one point in time, when they first get him out of the car, the officer asked two questions. One is, do you have a weapon? And he says, no. The second question was, do you mind if I pat you down? He said, okay. So he patted him down. Well, at that point in time, you know he's not in possession of a firearm or a deadly weapon. Now, he was never out of their sight from that point on. And so when the second stage of this occurred, which 
At the time, they began to try to handcuff him, and he starts to struggle and fight, eventually getting one of the tasers. I believe it was the officer who did not fire, whose taser was taken, and he's able to take off running. Even though at some point he turns and actually looks like he fires the taser. Mm -hmm. Tasers aren't like a semi-automatic where you can just fire over and over and over again. It's got to reset and, and all that. Uh, which most people wouldn't even realize that if they're not accustomed to using them. So he didn't pose any threat in terms of serious injury or death to the officer at the time he fired the shot. And they and also so, had uh, they had uh, information on him. They knew who he was. Yeah. They knew where he lived, he and they his had his car. License. So you got a car. Theoretically, you could have gone and gotten him whenever you wanted. Exactly. Um, uh, one, one more question for you, Commissioner, and then uh, back to you, Joey. I've been making something of, and please, I've always trusted you to keep me straight on things. Tell me if I'm looking at something too deeply. When I watch this altercation, I see two officers, a commissioner who do not know how to deal uh, with somebody on the ground. And it, to me, it's got to speak to not having the training, commissioner, that, uh, you know, I've studied this stuff for a long time as a journalist and as um, a fighter. They do not know how to control him. Yes, he's a good-sized guy. I don't see any evidence of super drug strength that anecdotally we talk about sometimes. If anything, he was kind of sleeping in the car. Um, they didn't know how to deal with him. They had to go to the taser. Do you see something in here that speaks to inadequate training? Well, I mean, it could very well be. I don't know what training they provide in that department for officers. Uh, there are courses in ground fighting, which is exactly what it's called, which help officers learn how to uh, actually uh, overpower an individual when you're in that situation. Now, it's a two, two against one situation. Yep. The one officer had his hand, uh, which really puts him at a disadvantage because now he's only got one hand to actually use to try to bring the person under control. He was probably using the drive stun of the uh, taser, uh, which is a pain compliance uh, technique. So it's very possible that that could have been an issue there. Or this guy just stronger and just overpowered him. Mm. Joey, last word to you. I, I think what we have to look at is what the chief said, which is a very significant point. And that's initially, before even the running, you had patted the person down. You made the determination at that point that they didn't have a weapon. And so now you're shooting him based upon the taser that he has looking backward toward you, and but he's proceeding to run. You have his license, you have the car, you live to fight another day, you preserve his life, you don't take the shot, and thereby you avoid criminal charges. More importantly, you preserve a life. And at the end of the day, that's what we're looking to do. Tamp down the situations, allow a person to live, and not overly be aggressive such that you take someone's life who's a brother, a cousin, an uncle, a member of the community. And that's the big tragedy here, whether there are charges leveled or not. Um, Commissioner, you believe there's going to be charges here? Well, against the one officer that fired the shot, uh, there's a strong uh, possibility that he'll be charged. I doubt if the second, I didn't see anything for the second officer that would indicate anything criminal. In fact, you know, quite frankly, even reviewing it administratively for suspension, I don't see anything that officer did that would uh, necessitate that. Joey Jackson, uh, Charles Ramsey, thank you, gentlemen, both. Be well. God bless. All right. We're watching history unfold with remarkable speed when it comes to what we're seeing in this country right now. Policing, race, the pandemic. But there's another huge moment in America that came as a surprise today from the Supreme Court. Why some conservative justices agreed with their liberal colleagues. What does it mean? Next.
You know, it's been five years since the Supreme Court declared same-sex marriage legal. There was big celebration then, and rightly so, but it was never the end of the fight. Today, the high court delivered another win for the LGBTQ community. Six to three vote. The court ruled Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act doesn't just make it illegal for employers to discriminate because of a person's sex. It also forbids discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The the decision extends workplace protections to millions of people. And it is a stunning defeat for the Trump administration considering the court's conservative bent. In fact, the president's first nominee... Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion and joined Chief Justice John Roberts with the liberals to form the six to three majority. The three dissenting justices criticized the majority decision for what they see as amending the law rather than interpreting it. And there is something to be said about that. Until Congress protects this slice of America, they will not be safe. It does suggest hope for advancing that cause. But it comes at a critical juncture in our society where movements like this one, where thousands rallying in New York and around the country for black lives and black trans people this weekend are proving the truth about America. If you want things to change, it has to start from the bottom up. Always the rule in this country. Thank you for watching CNN Tonight with D. Lemon right now. And any other time, maybe on... Well, I was saying any other time, it was any other day. That would have been a big lead story, mm-hmm. right? We have so much going on in the world right now that a story that would have been the lead that is a mention. It's great news. And actually, in a way, it's, you know, it's, it's I, I equate it to when people won't have to come out anymore, right? When mm-hmm. you are assumed that you sh- should be, and rightfully so, protected by the same constitution or the same rules as everybody else, right? Yeah. Regardless right. if you're black, white, trans, straight, gay, whatever. It is an issue that speaks uh, to our obsession with the other mm-hmm. in our culture. And until Congress acts, this is one that is about a pen stroke away. They need the law of Title Seven federal mm-hmm. protection to extend to the community. Until it does, We'll have to do this case by case, Don. Next, it'll be adoption. Then it'll be about financing. Yeah. Then it'll be about something else. Uh, until you give them protection for all of it, they don't have any of it unless you go case by case. And that is a long walk. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's extremely important to me, as you know, especially when it comes to my rights, being able to adopt kids. Look, I'm an old man. I'm thinking about adopting or having kids now. Mm. I don't know what the heck is going on. What's going on in this world? It's crazy. Well, I mean, I think that there are many reasons you would be a great parent. <laughs> and many I wouldn't. And no, I think you'll be a great parent. And yeah. I think what you know about yourself and how you live your truth of yourself yeah. is one of the biggest assets you have. It'll make you a better parent than someone like me. Thank you. I'm glad I gave you that 200 bucks yesterday just to say that. I have never seen your wallet. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. I literally am with him all the time. I don't know that he carries one. I don't have a wallet. I don't know that he has a money clip. I don't know what credit cards he has. I honestly have no clue. My credit card says Christopher Cuomo. I don't, I don't know what That's it says. It. Thank I've just you. never, I've never seen it happen. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. What's yours is mine. What's mine? I'm what, fine with it. I'm just saying. What is it? What's yours is mine and what's mine is ours. Something. What's yours is ours and what's Whatever. mine Whatever. You don't mine. need to I say it because you live it. Yes. Thank you, sir. I shall see you soon. I nice love show. you, Don Lemon. And this thing, I don't know what's going on.
Can you? Don't be jealous. No, it's embarrassing. If you can't grow hair, <laughs> it's, I, I mean, it's so embarrassing. I, and like, could you put some like Grecian formula or something on it, whatever it is, or what on the beard or my hair? Uh, well, the beard. What? That's not even a beard. It's just getting going. <laughs> You've been growing it for three weeks. It's that's not, not, not going to happen. That's not true. Not that's not, that, that offends the facts. Yeah, dye that thing. My looks are not my problem. Better still. I'm speaking for the boss, I'm sure. Shave it. Wouldn't be the first I'm time. I'm going to buy you a razor. Wouldn't be the first time. I got a razor in my office that you can borrow. Thank All you. All right, I got to get serious it. stuff. I got to run. See you, buddy. See you later. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.